Thank you, Bryce. And I might take a big time to uh, thank all of the. Whoops. Wrong <laughs> button. Thank the four men who have led us in uh, worship the last four Sundays. Just doing a stellar job, so I uh, thank, uh, thank each one of you. Uh, maybe just a short update as well as what the doctor says. The doctor assures me that everything's going to be okay as long as the heart doesn't stop, which the last time I checked is pretty much true of all of us, so that's the update. Also, just a note about the uh, title of the sermon here this morning, as you may have, if you read the uh, note that the pastor sent out or read the bulletin this morning, it's Mandela meets Philemon. Uh, I think that needs a little bit of tweaking, so if I might just add one word to that title. Uh, the title is Philemon meets Mandela again, because this is the second time that this uh, sermon will be preached uh, within the course of four months here in this church, uh, due to the uh, uh, rather loud voice of a vocal minority and the busy week this last week, I was convinced uh, to give the sermon again, uh, even though it's a repeat. So those of you who were here, uh, please uh, bear with me. And uh, I've changed some things, added some things, threw some things out, made it shorter. So uh, you'll be okay, I think. And those of you who weren't here, uh, uh, this will be the first time you've heard it. I think it's going to be an interesting, if not intriguing, look at the book of Philemon. It's an overview, for sure. It's not, uh, we're not going to look at each of the verse and exegete them and that sort of thing. So that will become evident as we go along. So please uh, pray with me as we begin here this morning. Father, we do thank you for your word, every word that's in it. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself enough of yourself that we can be fully cognizant of uh, who you are and what we need to do in order to have a right relationship with you. We pray that during this time this morning that your spirit would speak to us once again through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philemon meets Mandela again. So let's begin with Mandela. If we look at the Encyclopedia Britannica and read about uh, him, it says this, and I quote, Nelson Mandela, a native of South Africa, born July 18, 1918, died December 5, 2013, black nationalist and the first black president of South Africa, awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace in 1993 for helping end apartheid. But we're not here this morning primarily to look at this man's accomplishments or his character or his ethnicity. We're going to zero in on something else. And to do that, we go to a lady named Fiona Broom. In 2009, she was a speaker at conferences, and she believed that Nelson Mandela died in two, well, let's see, I think it was, uh, she thought he died in the 1980s in prison in South Africa. She was speaking at a conference, talking about Mandela's death, and she found out many people uh, believed that Nelson Mandela died in the 1980s, uh, somewhere in, uh, off the coast of South Africa. Many people throughout this nation believe that, but it's a false narrative, it wasn't true. When Miss Broom, Ms. Broom finally discovered that uh, she had been duped, that actually Mandela died in 2013, just 10 years ago, 
coming this uh, coming January 5th. When she discovered that, she was shocked and she developed a website to try and uh, give some explanation to how these false narratives come about. And she coined what happened, the Mandela Effect. She explained that that's when a group of people, a fairly large group of people in this case, believe a false narrative, a false story. They believe it because they hear it over and over and over again to the point that where that false narrative becomes <clears throat> truth. Well, I think we can uh, see that this kind of thing happens pretty regularly, does it not, in our culture. If we just think about the uh, journalism or news institution, it happens there all of the time, if I might use a hyperbole, or perhaps not. Uh, like the uh, January 6th uh, insurrection. Hear that story over and over again. Or the story about a climate-induced uh, hurricane. Or the story about a virus that doesn't come from a foreign lab. Or, uh, or a 100% effective vaccine. Or a, a rabid addict killed by a racist policeman. We hear these kinds of stories quite often. Uh, in fact, there was a study done a number of years ago uh, on Twitter, and it was about Twitter, where 100,000 news articles were looked at uh, over the course of 10 years, and it was found that over three-quarters of them were false stories that were believed. So it's a fairly common thing. I want us to see that it's not only common in journalism, but it can also happen in our study of Scripture as we look at this book of Philemon. So here's the flow of what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about text, narrative, and theme. That's the text of Scripture. We'll be looking at the book of Philemon. Then we'll look at the narrative that feeds this story as well, the background story, and then we'll look at the theme that comes out of the text and the narrative. And we're going to go through twice, this, uh, and that's TNT, text, narrative, theme, going through it twice. Uh, the second time we'll look at the text a little bit closer, and then a different narrative, and uh, correspondingly different theme. So, stand with me if you're able. And we'll look at the we'll read the entire book of Philemon. In the original, it's only 335 words. In the English Standard Version, I think it's about 460 some. Takes us longer to figure out what Paul said. Uh, it's 25 verses. Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, my our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, and to the beloved Apphia. Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and towards all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, 
because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who was once profitable to you. I just might mention here that word profitable. Paul here, in sort of typical Pauline fashion, is uh, using Onesimus' name, which means profitable or useful, and he's using it as kind of a, uh, a thing, I think, to get uh, Philemon's attention. He was once profitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be done by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So that's the text. Not long, and there's no long, complicated, normal Pauline sentences here. No really complex theology. It's a very short letter. You could probably put it on a postcard in which Paul makes a simple request to Philemon regarding the slave Onesimus. That's it. We'll take a closer look at the text next time around, but uh, su suffice it to say here, the text is pretty straightforward, not complicated. Now for the narrative. That is the backstory. This is found in virtually 100% of your study Bibles and your commentaries, the story that goes along with or behind this, this text. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. He steals something from his owner Philemon, something perhaps of considerable worth. Money, maybe. Maybe jewelry. And then he runs away and wanders around the Mediterranean world until he somehow uh, runs into Paul in Rome. They become friends. Paul introduces Onesimus to Jesus. Onesimus becomes a believer. Paul, knowing that Onesimus must return home, sends him packing, writes a letter making a request of Philemon. That's the end of the story. John MacArthur agrees. He says this, and I quote, Onesimus stole some money from Philemon and ran away. Like countless thousands of other runaway slaves, Onesimus fled to Rome, seeking to lose himself. 
Westminster Study Bible confers, I quote, betraying his master's trust, Onesimus absconded with a sum of money and became a wanderer in the cities of the Mediterranean. After finally arriving in Rome, he somehow came into contact with Paul. And finally, for those of you packing here this morning, uh, that is packing a Reformed Study Bible, it joins the Mandela, the Mandela crowd. And I quote, Onesimus had run away and somehow met Paul in Rome. It goes on to mention a serious wrong which had been committed by Onesimus. And lastly, it tells us, quote, Paul's judgment appears to be that Philemon should show mercy to the offending slave. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's the story that's behind the book of Philemon. Given that text and that narrative, there emerges an assumption as to what the main theme is. And the consensus to the theme, as what the theme is, is just as high as the backstory, 100%. I think Riken's Bible Handbook, which is a very good Bible handbook, by the way, puts it most succinctly. Under the heading Key Themes for the Book of Philemon, it has one word, forgiveness. Philemon needs to forgive Onesimus and show mercy to that offending slave who stole something from him and then ran away. Right? That's the text, that's the narrative, and that's the theme. First time around. That didn't take long. Now we're going to do it the second time, uh, looking at the text. And I might uh, add here, as we look at the text a little bit closer, that this is not uh, a typical exegesis of the book of Philemon, where we're going to look at each verse, look at the meaning of the words, see how the different uh, prepositional phrases fit together and all that. We're not going to do that. This is actually more a topical kind of a sermon if I might be so bold, uh, and so it's a topical sermon which I give unapologetically. It probably more is an overview or a flyover of the book of Philemon, after which then we would get into and look at uh, uh, textual criticism kinds of things. But this second time through, we do want to look at some things about, about the text. Four things, actually. First of all, uh, we want to notice that the text is addressed to one man primarily, but not only, it also addresses uh, a, a lady, another man, and to the whole church. This is a rhetorical device that Paul is using, where he speaks to one person, but he also includes many others. And in that honor and shame culture of which Rome was, this device was to give, was to put pressure on Philemon to do what he is going to be asked. Because not only is Philemon reading this letter independently and alone, but this letter is being read by the whole church that meets in Philemon's house. Also, uh, this community emphasis is added when we look at the word you in this book. Just the word you, Y-O-U. Unfortunately, in our English language, the word you can be plural or it can be singular. And the only way that we could probably fix that is if it was always plural. Uh, the writers would say, y'all, but it doesn't do that. It's you and you. So it's just an interesting thing that Paul does here as well. He uses the plural you at the beginning of the letter in verse 3 where it says, grace to you, that's all of you. 
And then again at the end of the letter, in verse 22, where he says, For I am hoping through your prayers to be granted to you. At the beginning and at the end, it's y'all. In between there, all of the yous are singular, with the finger pointed directly at Paul. Second thing we want to see in this text is that Paul uses an accepted practice known in that day as amicus domini, Latin for friend of the master. It's a very interesting thing they had going on in the master-slave world that day. And we want to remember that the, the slave uh, industry, or institution if we want to call it that, was nothing like the American slavery institution that uh, we had here a couple of hundred years ago. It was quite different. In this friend of the master, this amicus domini thing, a friend of the master could be contacted by the slave in order to settle something between the slave and the master. Remember, the, the slave or the master is contacting a friend of the master. That friend has a higher social status than the master or slave owner for a particular purpose. That way, if the master should acquiesce in any way whatsoever, he's not acquiescing to the slave, he's acquiescing to the friend of the master who's higher in social status than he is. When that is done, it's voila, then the, the master can acquiesce without losing face, in other words, without losing honor, and that's exactly what's uh, going on here. Uh, Paul is addressing Onesimus in such a manner that, or he's addressing Philemon in such a manner that Philemon can do the right thing and not lose face. Third thing we want to look at in this letter, sort of a, again a 30,000 foot level, is Paul makes this appeal at a, a very deep friendship, emotional kind of a foundation. It's not Paul's typical doctrinal uh, foundation upon which he makes this appeal. We see that there's three times in this letter and you can see it there, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, the word heart is mentioned. I think that's probably how it's uh, translated in most all of your, uh, your versions there, there. But it's not the common word for heart that's in the New Testament. It's not the word cardia, that, that Greek word. Rather, it's a word that uh, doesn't occur that often in Testament. It comes from the deep emotional feelings within us. It's like we might say here in English, like it's my, in my gut. Or if I say one of the tribes that we work with in, uh, when we were in Russia, it's where it mounted. I feel this deep within my kidneys. In other words, different cultures have different places where they place this deep emotional uh, approach of, of life. This is a, a different word. Splanchna is the Greek word if you, uh, if you need to know that. Paul is making his appeal based on a deep relational friendship with Philemon and with all the love and emotion that's tied to that. Uh, fourth. Fourth here, we want to see what the text doesn't say. This is where you might want to hang on to your hats. Number one, it does not say Onesimus stole anything from Philemon. Number two, it does not say that Philemon or that Onesimus ran away. 
Number three, it does not say he wandered around the Mediterranean world. Number four, it does not say he accidentally ended up in Rome. Number five, it does not say he, uh, he just happened to bump into Paul. And number six, it does not say Paul asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus. None of that is found in the text. But it all comes with the backstory. But before moving on to a different narrative, one, one more comment about the culture of that day. It's not uncommon in that day for a slave owner to send a trusted slave uh, to check on someone or something that was of interest to the master. So we just add that to the pot. So given those thoughts regarding the text, here's a different potential narrative. One that fixes the text and the context of that day. Philemon hears of Paul's imprisonment in Rome. Paul was used of God to lead Philemon to the Lord, so there's a close relationship there. Naturally, Philemon wants to help Paul, and he has the means to do so. So he sends a trusted slave, Onesimus, to Rome to check on Paul. Onesimus goes to Rome, checks on Paul, and helps him. Paul and Onesimus become friends. Paul leads Onesimus to the Lord. He becomes a follower of Christ. Paul disciples Onesimus, and that takes some time. Onesimus continues to give aid to Paul, but Paul knows Onesimus must return home, so he sends Paul packing, writes a letter, makes a special request of Philemon. We'll, re, we'll look at this uh, request a little bit more. Well, we'll do it right now. It's in line with this different narrative. It's a very different narrative. We get a huge clue as to what the different theme can be by noting what Paul asks, actually asks in the text of Philemon. Verse 17. Paul asked Philemon to accept or receive Onesimus. Receive him as you would receive me. Some of the versions say accept him as you accept me. It's a key word, a key verse in this <coughs> short book. Philemon is being asked to accept Onesimus. And the Greek word here for accept or receive speaks of admitting a person into one's close institutional circles. Now we might want to just let that sink in a little bit here this morning. If we can understand what Paul is saying, because this is radical in the master-slave world of that day. Do we, do we get what Paul is saying here? Because this is unheard of. But it's the crux of Paul's message and I quote, Philemon, you are to, no, not the Bible, uh, a commentary. You are to accept, that is, admit, receive Onesimus into your religious, social, and even familial circles. Accept him as you would accept me. He is our brother. He's one of us. He is no longer first a slave. He is now part of the Christian family. Unquote. Talk about a monumental, in that day, worldview shift on the part of Philemon, on the part of Onesimus, and the part of the church that this letter was written to. It would have 
tremendous practical implications. Uh, like, okay, honey, remember on Sunday to invite Onesimus, the slave, to come for dinner, oh yeah, and to stay for the same time around the campfire. Absolutely unheard of in that society. The theme, I submit to you, is not forgiveness. And I don't mean that there's no forgiveness whatsoever involved in any way, shape, or fashion. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that's not what Paul asked Philemon to do. He asked Philemon to accept him as a brother in Christ. From the text, there's nothing to forgive. To which point you might say, well, what about that verse there that says, if he owes you anything? Well, all I can say is that it means if he owes you anything. But it doesn't say he stole anything. It could be what a few commentators take note of. And that was, that's verse 18, by the way. Onesimus has been gone quite a while. Philemon sent him away. Philemon doesn't know how long it's going to take to check on Paul and to see what's going on and then to come back. All Philemon knows is that Onesimus has gone for quite a while. He comes back. What does Onesimus, what might Onesimus owe Philemon? Time. Because all of the time Onesimus has been in Rome, he hasn't been back home on the farm doing his chores. He hasn't been doing that. We don't know what, it, what Paul might be saying in a hypothetical uh, situation there where he says, if he owes you anything, charge it to me. The main point has shifted, I believe. It's not forgiveness. It's on something uh, very important. I'm not saying it's more important than forgiveness, but something very important to the Christian life. So now we move on to implication and uh, application here. The main theme has to do not with forgiveness, but with kinship and identity. This is a postcard-sized letter meant to have a library-sized impact on Philemon and Onesimus and the church. Kinship, I submit to you, is a big deal. It was a big deal in that day. In those days, uh, slaves were stripped of kinship. They were shut off from their kins. It was called natal alienation. The only identity marker a slave had was that he was a slave. He or she were slaves. That was their identity. Period. Now along comes Paul. Notice his kinship words there in verse 10. My child or my son, and whose father I have become. Verse 16. Onesimus, my beloved brother, kinship talk, and it's all throughout the book. Again, this is revolutionary. This would have been revolutionary in that Roman world. And in the newly formed Christian communities. Slaves, a part of the Christian family. Samaritans, part of the Christian family. Gentiles, part of the Christian family. Former murderers, homosexuals, prostitutes, part of the Christian family. Are you kidding me? No, Paul's not kidding us. And neither is God. 
Onesimus was given a new kinship family identity, and so had we, who have also been slaves to sin. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we become worshipers of God, we are not only imputed righteousness, but we are also implanted into a family. Imputed with righteousness, implanted in a family. And it's in that family that we find our fundamental identity. Kinship and, I, kinship and identity are inextricably bound. One scholar, New Testament scholar, writes this. I am convinced, I quote, I am convinced that Paul here is calling for a radical reorientation of the community's understanding of Onesimus' identity. Onesimus is now a beloved brother. He is kin, unquote. We humans get our identity from the groups that we belong to. We get our initial identity from the group that we grow up with. And God instituted the family to be that group. The nuclear as well as the extended family. It's within that God-oriented institution that little ones were to be and are to be shaped and molded. I realize I'm preaching to the choir here. But it's within that institution, it's where we've derived the first perceptions of who we are, our identity. Home life is extremely important. Dads and moms are really important. Just a, a short illustration to, as to the place and power of family and parents. Uh, let's go back uh, 40 years. I was taking a sabbatical from being a fish and wildlife biologist in Alaska. There, I spent the winter of 1973 and 74 uh, trapping in a really remote area of Alaska. I wanted to get away from uh, uh, people, I guess. <laughs> and, up, and on this up to ordinary uh, day there, I think it was a December, about 40 some years ago, I was headed back to the log cabin walking across a lake, a huge lake, going from the last trap set to the cabin. Uh, wind was blowing horrendously that day. I had a pack on, I had a fox dead in the pack, uh, snowshoes in the pack, uh, miscellaneous stuff, and a rifle. And uh, in the middle of that lake, a big lake, huge lake, ice was three foot thick, or it had been. I got in the middle of that and the, and the ice gave way. Uh, and I was uh, up to my neck in hot water. Up, I was above my neck in cold water. There was no bottom. And at that moment, I knew, I had a pretty good idea, this is the end. This is, this is how it's going to be. Okay, at 23 years old, I'm done. I looked up onto the hills to the south, not hills, they were huge mountains, beautiful mountains. We never, never saw the sun all winter because the sun's always behind the mountain. I looked up there, and there, one of the strangest, most surreal experiences that I've ever had, there was my, there was a face. And it wasn't God, no, it wasn't Jesus. There was my dad looking down at me. Actually, he wasn't there, it was in my head, I assume. But there was dad looking down at me. I just tell that story because in that rather intense and emotional instant, one of the first things that came to my mind was dad who I hadn't thought a lot about. But since then, I see that he's pretty instrumental 
and how I view myself and how I think about life. Parents are that. For good, or for better, or for worse, we might add. Those kind of memories help us, and sometimes they haunt us. It might surprise us to know that of all the institutions in human societies, the one that is most influential in most cultures around the world, you know what institution that is? It's not media, it's not education, not medical, it's the kinship system. In most cultures around the world, that's because most cultures tend to be animistic and somewhat uh, aggregarian. It's the kinship system that's the most important. The nuclear and extended family, generally speaking, uh, well, I should add this, uh, I think that's the way it used to be here in North America. But I believe we have moved on from that uh, in the past uh, 40 to 50 years. The nuclear and extended family, generally speaking, has become so disjointed, so fragmented, so split up, that it has lost much of the God-intended cohesiveness. Young ones are often largely molded by people other than parents. Kinship is often more found in online relationships than in bloodline relationships. Media often has more influence than moms. Gangs, believe it or not, often have more influence than grandparents. And friends often have more influence than fathers. I, I'm getting carried away. The Reformation Study Bible introduces, introduction makes this summary statement concerning identity. Quote, Paul says that Onesimus' Christian identity is greater than his slave identity. Bullseye. And we can add Philemon's Christian identity is greater than his master identity. And we can add further, your and my Christian identity is greater than any other identity marker the Mandela effect throws at us. I am a white, old, short, balding, heterosexual, married, male, American, Canadian, former biologist, former army soldier, owner of a Ford 150, church elder, conservative. I'm all of those. But none of those should be competing with who I ultimately am. I am a brother in the family of God by grace. We live in a society that's playing with fire when it comes to identity. The concept of identity is on a secular chopping block, being hacked to pieces. Now added to the denial of God's relevance, or even existence, there's the open scoffing of being created in God's image, male and female, male or female. Segments of our society are pushing us to take absolute control of everything, including our identity. 
We and we alone, I and I alone have the right to determine who I am, down to my gender, we are being told. That's bizarre, that's abhorrent, it's also evil. It takes the autonomy of self to a level that I don't know if any other society has ever gone. And it will not be overlooked by the one who created us and in whose image he created us. This issue is not going to go away. It's knocking at the doors of our homes and our churches. That's the nature of this beast. There's probably enough society bashing for now. Suffice it to say that this fallen world is throwing a whole bucketful of identity markers at us 24-7. Our looks, our beauty, our ethnicity, our gender, our shape, our lack of shape, our vocation, our talents, our lack of talents, our vehicle, the horsepower of our vehicle, our house square footage, our nationality, our color, our bank account, our education, our family, our church affiliation, etc. It's safe to say that every one of us sitting in this room has some kind of a struggle with our identity. Some kind of a battle. Who am I? How do I perceive myself? You may have heard someone say, do you know who I am? That's the wrong question. Do I know who I am? Well, I think I can pass the theological test. I'm created in the image of God. I'm one of his special creations. I'm wonderfully made. I'm in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Yes, but if you follow me around for, let's say, about a month, you would probably find out that I don't live up to my theological ideal. John Calvin, in his Institutes of Christian Religion, states that there are two basic things to the Christian life. Knowing God and knowing self. How we see God is a big deal. How we see ourselves is a big deal. The book of Philemon addresses both. To the degree that I am off in how I see God, I will be off in how I see myself. To the degree that I'm off in how I see myself, I will be off in how I see God. To the degree that I am off on both of those assumptions, I will have problems, corresponding problems, in my life and in life's relationships. I read this quote recently in a secular book. Each individual must create his or her identity and meaning for themselves. To accept identity and meaning imposed from anywhere else is the greatest of sins. That, my friends, unquote, that, my friends, is the polar opposite of what the Bible tells us. We must not fall for the Mandela effect. We must not believe this false narrative that is buzzing all around us. It's a very short book. 335 words in the original. 25 verses. But the book of Philemon is a profound wake-up call. It was for Philemon, it was for Onesimus, and it was for the church, and it is for us. I'm surmising here, but I believe it's possible that both Philemon and Onesimus, after reading or hearing this word from Paul, found a stump somewhere and alone put their head in their hands, and they bowed before Almighty God, and they thought to themselves, Hey, we, Philemon and Onesimus, we are brothers. We really are brothers in a real family. Okay, here I'm not surmising. I believe it would behoove each of us to do the same. 
to spend some time this coming week head in our hands and bowed before Almighty God and asking ourselves, who am I? Who am I really? Who do I think I am when nobody's listening and nobody's watching? What's my bottom line identity? The Bible says we are human beings created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image, male and female. The Bible says if we're followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. The Bible says Christ is in us. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you? The Bible says we're saved by Christ, clothed in his righteousness. Our identity is wrapped up in our relationship with Jesus. God and God alone has the authority to tell us who we are. No one else, probably the least of all, ourselves have that kind of authority. The current cultural Mandela effect regarding our kinship and identity is a lie. It's a big, fat lie. One that we need to face head on in the dens of our own mind. If you said yes and surrendered to Jesus, you are a child of God. You've been received by him into his family. Based not on who you are, what you look like, how you dress, what you have done in the past, good or bad, but on the fact that God has chosen you as a part of his covenantal family. And given you and sees you through the righteousness of Christ. Since that is how God sees us, why should we belittle or inflate his perception with a false narrative, one that we might be telling ourselves over and over again? I'm not so naive as to think that one sermon, this is a closing, even if that sermon is heard twice within the course of four months, that that's going to lead us to complete right thinking about our kinship and identity. This kind of thing uh, takes us some time. Probably until we, probably until our heart stops. But I am so confident as to think that the Spirit of God can, works in our, can work in our hearts. Cardia and splanchna in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways. So may he do so, helping us, each one of us, to think biblically about who we are, our identity. Let's leave this building with the theme of Philemon ringing in our ears and with the mindset that we want to, with the help of Almighty God, grow in this critical arena of life, our identity. Let's go forth thinking and acting like members of God's family. For that's who we are. That's where we belong. And as for this Mandela effect, whether it's with the daily news or interpretation of scripture, yeah, let's send it packing as well. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this message from the book of Philemon, of which we really didn't get into. We just flew over and laid the foundation. But we thank you for this foundation of who we are. Thank you for your wonderful grace and helping us to straighten all of that, all of that out. 
from the the world is giving a false narrative to those who don't know you, trying to give them some security, and it's trying to give us who do know you a false sense of our identity as well. Help us to work through that uh, with your help. Uh, pray for your grace, continued grace in our lives as we uh, grow in knowing who you are and who I am. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.